One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The streets of some of the world's biggest bustling cities now lie empty. The air is cleaner, the skies are clear. This tranquility may appear to be one of the small silver linings of the lockdowns intended to contain the coronavirus pandemic, but it heralds a grim reality for car makers. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio, our weekly show on the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, The Economist finance editor, and today we're looking at how to save a sputtering industry. They fear, and I think rightly, that even once the lockdowns are over, people will not be in the mood at all to buy a new car. The world's car giants need to change gear. We should try to transform faster to come out stronger. Or else they risk getting stuck in reverse. The signal from capital markets is that the internal combustion business is essentially in terminal decline. 2020 was supposed to be a year of delivery. The car industry had recognised its flaws and promised to do better, making strides towards a future that would be both safer and greener. In February, Mary Barra, the boss of General Motors, outlined her vision for a world free of crashes, pollution and congestion. These are very real problems at very large scale. But we have the technology and the expertise to solve them, and we do believe that the future looks good. We see the future of transformation that is one that is all electric, self-driving, and fundamentally, it is connected. And at Davos in January, Herbert Diess, the head of Volkswagen, was equally confident in his company's ability to accelerate into this future. Very safe. We will probably spend more time in a car than today, so cars will be very convenient. My view is that the car will be the most precious and, and uh, still prestigious innovative internet device. What could hinder the effort? Uh, nothing can hinder the effort. <laughs> But the last few months have brought an industry that directly employs 10 million people worldwide to a standstill. To look under the hood and find out what's going on, I'm joined by Simon Wright, our industry editor, and Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor. Simon, how did 2020 kick off for car makers? There was a time when it looked like the industry might be producing 100 million light vehicles this very year. But uh, for the last couple of years, after the Chinese economy slowed, sales actually slumped for the first time since the financial crisis. So the car industry was already sort of wondering about uh, how to deal with that when this new crisis arrived. Patrick? It was supposed to be the year when, first of all, it delivered on improving profitability in the short term. And the industry's basically been terrible at that. But it, I think it was also hoped to be the year when there was a bit more clarity over how car companies were going to deal with this imminent revolution, the shift to electric vehicles, uh, which is incredibly hard to manage. And instead of that, obviously, the virus has thrown both those twin objectives into the dustbin. This points to a sort of a wider dilemma of the car industry, in that in order to 
be able to afford the investments in electric vehicles, it needs to sell its profitable internal combustion engine cars to keep that investment going. So fewer internal combustion engine cars could in fact mean fewer electric vehicles in due course. What about another ripple effect, the impact on the finance side of the industry? What does this disruption mean for car loans? It's a really interesting issue to look at. And if you look at the volume of auto loans out there, so these are really loans to help people buy cars, it's gone up a lot. Two, two areas of possible distress. Some of those loans are packaged into bonds, rather like subprime housing loans were you know, 10 years ago. Uh, so one risk is just the bond market for car loans grinds to a halt. There are signs that it's struggling. The other area of potential risk is that most of the big car companies have have kind of car banks that sit within them, whose job it is is to extend loans to customers. And again, another risk for the car firms is just as the factories are shutting down, suddenly people might start defaulting on their car loans. And then the final element of concern is also that a lot of the car companies' financing arms are involved in leasing vehicles, you know, to other companies, for example. And normally they're they're exposed to the ultimate value of the car. So when the lease ends, the car company gets back the, the vehicle which has been used. And the, the price of used cars is also falling sharply. So one of the intriguing things about the car industry is it's not just about factories and, and roads and whether people drive or not. There's also this quite big financial operation that can get disturbed too. Simon, let's return to the core product here. What impact are we seeing on car production? Well, first in China and then in Europe and America and the rest of the world, production has all but stopped for um, several weeks. China has restarted. Europe, some factories are restarting. North America will come a little bit later. I spoke to Hacken Samuelson, the boss of Volvo, and he told me about some of the measures they're implementing to get their factories up and running again. We have uh, three uh, Chinese factories there. Of course, they had a lot of experience of uh, what type of social distancing measures did they apply. And uh, one example, we measure uh, body temperature and uh, blood oxygen level here voluntarily when you enter. We have changed the assembly work so people are distanced. In certain situations where you come closer than one meter, then we have mouth protection in those areas or glasses. And we also normally work now with gloves. So I I really can say to our people that we have a safe working place for you here. The other worry that uh, other car makers have is supply chains, because you have global supply chains. You have countries going into lockdown and out of lockdown at different times with just-in-time delivery the sort of even with dual and multi-sourcing that sort of all goes wrong in a, in a, in a pandemic it's almost impossible to stock up the right parts i mean you have a hundreds of thousands of part numbers and even if you have very advanced forecasting and if you just miss one part, there will be no car. So, so I think the uh, way back where you just have a big stock and go away from just in time, I, I think that is not relevant, will not happen. Uh, but uh, of course, I would guess still I've, uh, there is a trend towards build and source where you sell. So I think that trend started earlier, more than a year ago, you remember. Yeah. 
trade uh, restrictions and so on. It will be a more regional sourcing that is going to continue, is my belief. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on demand. I mean, most forecasters are saying that the global market will be down about 20% this year, perhaps a little more. So I'd, I'd like to get your take on what you think the impact on the whole industry of the pandemic will be, and also whether you think premium car makers like yourselves are going to be more resilient to the downturn. Mm, it, it's... Uh really difficult to so here i'm going more from where i believe we are and uh, that is that if you look at the activity now in europe and us uh, i mean it's not down 20 percent it's absolutely optimistically thinking down to 20 percent of normal <laughs> so i mean how fast will these restrictions be lifted? And, and nobody wants to risk the health of people, of course. So as long as people cannot go to restaurants and cannot go out in parks, I don't think we should believe they will buy cars. This is inevitably going to have an impact on the industry in terms of revenues and profits and cost cutting will have to come. Yet the industry faces a dilemma. It needs to sell profitable internal combustion engine cars to afford the investment in electric vehicles. I mean, do you think there's any chance that there'll be a scaling back of ambitions for electrification? Could be. I think we, we don't have a same view on this in the business. Uh, I think it would be really bad signal if we in any way indicated now that we are ready to offer the health of the planet long term because now we have a new excuse to to do that. Our conclusion is almost uh, in the other direction. I mean, you could see this is a disaster. Let's sit it out and uh, everything will come back to normal. Customers will return into our physical showrooms. Customers will return to buy our diesel engines. That, I think, would be a rather risky forecast as well. We believe that electric cars are the things people will buy especially if you want to have profitability. I mean, it will probably be a market for combustion cars, but I mean, let's speculate what the prices will be for a diesel car six months from now. I would be rather nervous uh, to think if there is money to be made with, with such a car. So we think definitely it would be wrong to halt the development and we as a company believe we should do the contrary. We should try to transform faster to come out stronger. Do you think the industry is going to be permanently smaller if we pass the peak car? No, really no. Of course, uh, <laughs> if this would trigger a worldwide recession which take five years to live through, I mean, then that will change everything. I think it's almost meaningless to, to speculate about that. Assuming now where the business will come back, then uh, there will be continued growth. I mean, if economical development will bring in more people into the economy every year, people are taken out of poverty and they want a motorcycle and the ones who have motorcycles want to have a car. I think that is something very realistic that will continue happening. Maybe also what we see what has happened in China. I mean, why shouldn't that happen in India? Why shouldn't that happen in Africa one day? You need to believe in that. And I think you can do that without being unrealistically optimistic. Hakan, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Simon, Patrick, let's talk about the uncertainties a little bit more. 
One is that we don't know how much longer these lockdowns could continue for. And the other is that fewer people might want to use their cars. Is that an existential threat? Have we reached peak car, as you call it, Simon? Well, if you speak to car makers, they're still very hopeful that uh, we get back on this growth path. But that's not entirely clear. And I think for one reason is that... uh, People in cities are getting quite used to having this lovely car-free environment with a sort of relatively fresh air, for one thing. And it's not entirely clear if and how people are going to return to work. So there's a possibility that, um, even though we shouldn't confuse sort of car usership with car ownership, that uh, things could change. If you overlay those on the bigger trends that the industry are looking at, which is the move to mobility services instead of car ownership, car usership through ride-hailing and car-sharing, and eventually sort of autonomy, then there are sort of megatrends at work here as well that could mean that the car industry will be permanently smaller. Another thing to look at is the oil price. It's obviously collapsed. Uh, Some contracts for, for oil went below zero. And part of the reason is because oil traders and investors are worried about a permanent drop in demand from commuters. Patrick, given the car industry's carbon footprint, isn't there an argument for creative destruction here? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if, particularly if you, if you worry about climate change, there's a sort of line of thought that actually seeing all of these big carbon spewing businesses get into serious trouble may just be speeding up the inevitable or desirable. Um, but the reality isn't as simple as that. I mean, one is the obvious point that they employ a lot of people. So there's obviously an enormous economic hit. But the other element is simply, as Simon touched on earlier, you know, the big existing car companies account for something like 60 to 70% of total investment in the industry. So if you do want to get to a future in which there are mass-produced, cheap electric vehicles and a large variety of models, really a lot of the work getting there is going to have to be done by the traditional big car companies. Put simply, adaptation by them would be far preferable to extinction. Coming up, how ready is the car industry to go electric? As companies figure out how to weather these uncertain months, our sister company, the Economist Intelligence Unit, has launched a global business barometer to track business confidence across industries and around the world. To find out more, go to globalbusinessbarometer.economist.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. An evolution of the car industry may be preferable to its outright extinction, but it will not be easy. Just how ready is the car industry to go electric? Well, it's getting there, shall we say. A bit like a slow old car up a motorway hill. Paul Markilly is our innovation editor. The problem is batteries, really. I mean, they're good. They're getting better. A battery in a modern electric car will take, you know, 200 miles or so, 400 miles. You've got lots of money to buy a super luxury SUV, but they're still expensive. The batteries are costly and pricey, and that makes electric cars not very profitable for their manufacturers. 
on batteries. What's the next frontier? Well, batteries are getting better. I mean, the lithium-ion battery is the battery of choice. It can store five times more electricity than a old-fashioned lead-acid battery. The trick with them is something called energy density, which is basically the amount of energy you can cram into a kilogram. And that is getting better slowly with mass production from some of the big companies like Tesla and those in China. The big breakthrough that everyone's waking for is something called a solid-state lithium-ion battery. Basically, that's one that hasn't got any liquid in it. It's going to be safer, so less likely to sort of rupture and sometimes uh, burst into flames, as these things can. And also, it could pack away a lot more energy. Now, in theory, these things in the lab could take a car for uh, 500, 800 kilometres. But the practice is making them, mass-producing them at an affordable cost, it's still proving tricky and it could be a decade away. And how do you think the current disruption will affect car makers' progress on those innovations? Well, it's not changed what's going on in the laboratory. The scientists are still beavering away and coming up with you know, some amazing futuristic batteries which would really take cars a long way. But the trouble is it takes a long time to get those things out of the laboratory and into mass production. And it could well take longer once those car companies are losing money and just can't afford to gamble on risky technologies that may or may not produce the results. During the financial crisis, the last time the car industry had to significantly cut costs, capital spending dropped by 29%. Today, the pressure to balance the books is even greater. In an interview with a German talk show, Marcus Lanz, at the end of March, Herbert Dies, the head of Volkswagen, was frank. He said that VW was not currently making any sales outside of China and estimated that the company was burning through $2 billion a week. <coughs> Analysts at Jefferies estimate that the eight biggest car makers in America and Europe could burn over $50 billion of cash in the second quarter. At that rate, they could run out of money by the end of the year. Companies are cancelling dividends and begging governments for assistance. Across the rich world, governments will pay furloughed workers. But in countries where the car lobby has clout, it is asking for more. To get the U.S. economy up and running again, we're going to have to get the U.S. auto industry up and running again. John Bozella, CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, the trade body for the American car industry, wants to see more government support at both state and federal level. We are the largest of the manufacturing sectors in the United States and 10 million Americans rely on us for their livelihoods. This support can take very different forms, in some cases even going beyond what many in the industry had asked for. On March 31st, America's government watered down rules on emissions. In Europe, companies have not yet asked for relief from the EU's tougher fuel efficiency standards. But they are seeking other forms of state aid where they can. The car makers in Germany are meeting on May 5th with Angela Merkel, with the Chancellor here. Fendelin von Bredo is our European business correspondent. What they're asking for is a buyer's premium of several thousand euros. So they basically want a subsidy from the state to get demand for cars going again, because they fear, and I think rightly, that even once the lockdowns are over, people will just not feel flush or will not be in the mood at all to buy a new car. Even now, car shops have opened. In our neighbourhood in Berlin, there are two big car shops, a BMW and a Mercedes. 
And I just don't see very many people in there. And do you think they'll get the support that they're asking for, Wendelin? I'm uncertain, you know, because the car industry was in trouble before the COVID-19 crisis. So you wonder whether you are not going to prolong the pain by giving them subsidies now. On the other hand, Merkel is on the phone with Dies, the boss of VW and the other two quite regularly anyway, which I think is a bit sort of unusual, but it is it is such an important industry. You know, it used to be 25% of the DAX of the German stock market index was just car makers. I mean, that's now because they are doing so badly, it's now 10%. But I mean, it's still a lot. <laughs> Vendelin, do you think this subsidy will help the car industry make progress towards electrification? They are asking for subsidies of their core product, which is petrol powered cars, which are by definition dirty. Only the ones they are selling now are less dirty than the ones they used to sell, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, which are still in use. And, you know, their little joker argument is, ah, and by the way, we would also help the environment, you know, not as much as 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 everybody would like to, because they're not green cars or they're not carbon neutral, but at least they're cleaner than the ones on Germany's streets. Far from helping the sector accelerate its transformation, such cash for clunkers government subsidies are more likely to freeze it in time. I asked Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor, and Simon Wright, our industry editor, whether the car industry itself can take the wheel and change direction. Well, it's in a a really difficult position, and I think the key thing is to sort of be proactive. So there are, I think, three goals to focus on. The first is really becoming a kind of pioneer at getting factories up and running under new social distancing rules. If the factories stay completely idle, the amount of money they lose is is truly mind-blowing. The second thing is is to avoid cutting investment in the new technologies and models that they're developing. It might be tempting in the short term, particularly as they're not particularly profitable, but if the industry doesn't have a kind of future on a 10-year view, it's, it's really driven into a brick wall. And then a last helpful thing would be more consolidation. I mean, there have been a couple of car deals over the last decade, but really it's still a pretty fragmented industry with national champions and that impedes efficiency a lot. And another round of deal making would be one way of getting the industry fitter, not just to survive the virus and its aftermath, but also the energy transition that's ahead of us. I think Patrick is exactly right that they need more consolidation. It's not necessarily clear that will come through sort of big, weak firms getting together. Two big, weak firms getting together makes a massive, weak firm. The car industry has too much sort of capacity as it is. So if one or two of them were to leave the industry, that would be no bad thing. But I think we might see a lot more of the collaboration we already started to see in the industry to share the costs of uh, developing the sort of new technologies. One of the big criticisms of the industry has also always been that it doubles up on investment. You know, lots of different car companies build almost identical four-cylinder engines that are basically a commodity under the bonnet that the customer doesn't really care about. Uh, But we are seeing uh, car companies get together. Ford and Volkswagen, for example, are coming closer together to share electric vehicle technology. Ford is going to use Volkswagen's platform to build some of its electric cars. 
We've seen Jaguar Land Rover, a British car company, and BMW also announce a similar sort of tie-up. And I think we'll see a lot more of this going on in the future. Is it possible to say at this point who the big winners and, and losers from all this will be? I mean, we know that Tesla's share price, for example, has gone up by nearly two thirds since the start of the year. Simon? Tesla is a good example. Tesla's advantage is that it simply doesn't have this huge legacy of 100 years of tinkering with internal combustion engines. It's very, very hard for car companies that are run by mechanical engineers to sort of leave all that behind. I think the really big car companies with the sort of strong balance sheets uh, will come out of this less scathed than uh, smaller car companies. Volkswagen and Toyota are a good example. Premium car companies tend to do better. So that means the German premiums, maybe Volvo, perhaps even Jaguar Land Rover, which was struggling beforehand. Chinese car companies, the Chinese government is very keen for the Chinese car companies to go out there and take on the world. They might see these low valuations as the opportunity to uh, take over Western car companies. That's a possibility. Another winner is at the very, very top of the market. If you look at Ferrari's share price, it's been affected a little bit by the crisis, but it hasn't fallen the sort of 30, 40% of the share prices of the bigger car companies. Simon, how can car makers be persuaded to ring fence investment in the innovative but the loss-making parts of their business uh, to make sure that the progress towards going green doesn't stall? Well, I think the long-term trend to electrification is still going to be there. That's being pushed by regulations, not by consumers, uh, particularly in Europe, where very tight emissions regulations mean car companies have to sell a lot of electric vehicles. But also, I think car companies can see the writing on the wall. If they don't move in this direction, they risk falling behind their competitors who are all moving in this direction. So I think that's one reason. But I think what we might see is... uh, other new technologies, the uh, mobility services, ride hailing, ride sharing, which had already the car companies were looking at them and not really seeing how they could become profitable businesses. I think they might pull back investment there. And I think autonomous cars as well. Again, these that's something where the sort of focus had been lost a little bit by the industry even before the crisis. It's going to be a long wait now for the truly autonomous car to come along. Patrick? I I agree with Simon. And I I think the other thing is that the signal from the market, you know, what what investors want is absolutely unambiguous. So the things that get valued relatively highly are companies like Tesla, which focuses on electric vehicles, or even the ride-sharing companies, Didi, Uber, which have their problems, but essentially are seen as uh, strong growth stories. The signal from capital markets is that the internal combustion business is essentially in terminal decline. So I think if you're running a big car company, the message from the world of investment is very clear and, and amplifies the strategic decisions that need to be made. So for this juggernaut of an industry to stay roadworthy, it's going to need a lot of work. Simon, Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ratchanuk. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. To read more on the future of the car industry, go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. And while you're with us, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and in London, this is The Economist. When 
you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.